Welcome, everybody, to um, Conversations in Web3. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, this is a v I'm very excited for this conversation. Um, I'd really like to welcome uh, very warmly um, Stefan Kinsella, who is just a brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, I've, I've been listening to his stuff for a long time. Uh, he's an intellectual property expert. Um, and um, I'm really excited to have him for this conversation. Um, just off the top, just right away for anyone listening, um, nothing we're talking about here should, should in any way be considered legal advice. Uh, we're not going to be we're not going to be talking about so much um, what the laws are necessarily. This is going to be a philosophical discussion about, um, you know, what is intellectual property? Are, are the laws that um, surround that subject legitimate? Um, you know, and so, um, you know, take everything here as sort of a, a larger conversation about, um, these topics, because anyone who's involved in web three or NFTs knows this is a very hotly, uh, debated topic at the moment, um, much more so than it is in the general public. Um, there's a lot of people who believe firmly in intellectual property and copyrights and the, the idea that, um, or I should say the concept that you can own an idea. Um, and then there's also a, a very sizable number of people who believe the opposite and who are doing some really uh, interesting things to kind of push the envelope. So, uh, Stefan, welcome. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. Nice Saturday afternoon. Right on, right on. So I think the first thing I'd like to ask you um, and I, I did. I, I listened to your recent uh, conversation with Tom Woods on his show um, from a few mm -hmm. days ago, which was excellent. If and I'll, I'm going to post a link to that in the um, in the in the comment section of the tweet at the end of the space uh, for people to listen to it because it's a great overview of this subject. Um, but what I'd like to ask you to expand on a little bit is is maybe talk about like where where does the concept of intellectual property come from? Like historically. You know, when did people start talking about this concept? Well, I think that um, it's a, it's a kind of interesting evolution in and the history of ideas and law and social policy. Um, I think that there's always been a recognition of the importance of ideas and creators and creativity. There's always been uh, an idea that it's important to give credit to people who come up with useful ideas. Um, you know, that's, uh, accreditation, uh, and to identify who did it and to give them credit and to know where it came from and to understand it. Um, and there's also a connection between, um, productivity in life and success and intelligence and ideas. Um, so, you know, when we're successful in society, it's because we find ways to use the natural resources at our disposal in, in useful ways, right? And so the more intelligence you have, the more knowledge you have about how to do that, the more wealth that we can generate and the, the higher standard of living that we can have. We, this is why like the human race right now is richer on a per capita basis than people 200 years ago or a thousand years ago. It's not because we're smarter. It's because we have more information at our disposal, right? Um, and so in the analog age, let's say in the pre-information age, the pre-digital age, the pre-internet age, um, there was a close connection between these things. So, for example, if you came up with a new technique or a new machine that made you more efficient and more prosperous, you would generally become richer um, because you would have a factory that would sell these improved products. Now, over time, people would emulate you and compete with you, but that was considered to be a natural part of the free market process. Like, And that's how, why the human race always gets uh, richer is because… Uh, people always compete with the first guy, and then they emulate what he does that satisfies consumers, and then the ideas spread, and then people have an incentive to innovate and come up with even better ideas, and so the human race marches on um, in that way. But in the analog age, when you come up with a new idea, um, you're the first one to market. You have a natural sort of natural monopoly or natural advantage for some time because it takes a while for people to notice Number one, that your idea is successful because everyone tries different things and some fail, some succeed. So you, you can't just say knock off or rip off or copy everyone that does something on the free market. People, people that are competitors or latecomers, they sit back and they have to wait and see what actually succeeds. So there's a natural time advantage to the first guy because 
no one knows if he's going to be successful until some time has passed. And then once that becomes obvious, it, t- it still takes some more time in the analog age for people to gear up to compete with him. Like you have to you know, get money to build a factory or to start a new restaurant, uh, hire workers, train them, get up to speed, build up your reputation, things like that. So the point is that when you come up with a new product on the market, there's always the prospect of competition, which keeps you from charging – Prices that are too high because if we charge prices that are too high, you will attract competition. Um, but it's not that easy for people to compete with you. It takes a time. And when it takes a while, that means that you can make a profit for a while. So people get used to this idea that if you work hard and you're creative, the natural outcome is that you make a profit, Okay, which is true. Generally, the harder you work, the more you satisfy your consumers, the more money you're going to make. So people start associating that idea with the idea that if you work, you're entitled to an income, which is actually not true, right? Um, And that leads to the IP idea. So what happened is that um, people confused economically uh, the two factors of successful human action. One is the availability of natural resources or scarce means, which is what we call property, And then the other is information or ideas, technological recipes that we use to guide our actions. So every successful human action has to have the availability of means of action or scarce resources and knowledge to guide the action. And there's a possibility of conflict with respect to the use of these scarce resources you know, because I can't use your factory to make products at the same time as you. So we have to have property rights to allocate ownership rights. But that's not true of ideas or information, which is the second crucial ingredient of human action, um, because everyone can use the same information at the same time to guide their own actions. So property rights never were meant to apply and never should be applied to ideas or information. But in the analog age, these things were so closely connected, people didn't really separate them out. And so what happened was um, you had two accidents of history um, you had statist interventions in the economy and the in the quasi free market economy in in medieval and later Europe. Um, basically, you had the 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 the, the, uh, the king or the queen, the, the crown, granting monopolies to favored court cronies, and this is what the origins of patents are. Um, so the, the the king or queen would give to someone the monopoly right to be the only one who could sell. Or make a given good in a given region. They would do that so that this person could charge a monopoly price for it, and then they could kick back some of it to the king. Right. So this was all a big racket. It was monopolistic. It was mercantilist. It was protectionist. It was anti-free market. It was statist. It was wrong. Um, That led ultimately to abuses, and then the parliament cracked down with what's called the Statute of Monopolies of 1623, which – basically reined in the right of the government to grant these monopolies, but it left intact the right to grant monopolies for inventions. And so that's where patents come from. Patents are state-granted monopolies to control an invention, which – so it stems from the practice of the government protecting people from competition. So it's protectionist. So that's the origins of patents. And then when the U.S. Constitution was um, created and ratified in 1789 – it included a clause saying, well, the government has the right to grant these these monopolies to protect patents or to protect inventions called patents because that was the tradition in England at the time. Okay, Now, copyright, which is the other big intellectual property monopoly, comes from um, – comes from the practice of the government and the church censoring speech like they are censoring press, the press actually. like So they would censor what could be printed. So originally before the printing press, it was really easy for the government and the church to control what could be printed because they had a monopoly on the scribes, the people that would print these books by hand, and they would only print certain books that were permitted by the government and by the church, uh, you know, the right kind of Bible or whatever. Um, with the printing press, that threatened this monopoly and this easy control over what could be printed, and so the first response like in England was the – Stationers Company, which was about a hundred-year monopoly on printing, um, which allowed them to control this new technology, the printing press, and to still keep under control what books could be printed. So this is censorship. It's literally censorship. Um, 
And then when the monopoly, when the charter of the stationers company expired, um, uh, the parliament passed uh, the statute of Anne in 1710, which was the first modern copyright law. So copyright law, which also influenced the U.S. Constitution and U.S. copyright law, came from the statute of Anne, which came from the stationers company, which came from the attempts of the government and the church to censor speech because of the printing press. Okay, so copyrights roots lie in censorship and thought control, and patents roots lie in protectionism and mercantilism. And so the U.S. immediately passed the Patent Act and the Copyright Act in 1790 or so, right after the Constitution was ratified in 1789. And immediately industries sprang up to take advantage of these laws. Uh, like the publishing industry and various inventors and com and uh, artisans and companies like that. So in the 1800s, there was sort of the Industrial Revolution was getting um, underway. America was becoming more prosperous. Europe, Britain was becoming more prosperous because of technology and commerce and capitalism and the industrial age. And free market economics was 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 uh, coming into its own, and a lot of free market economists started objecting to these state granted monopoly privilege grants of patent and copyright because they recognized that they were derogations from private property rights, free market competition, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And so, in response, the government and the industries that had grown up in dependence on these monopoly rights, like the publishing industry and different um, manufacturing concerns mounted um, an effort to to support these laws and to keep them from being abolished, which they started being abolished in some countries in Europe. Like some of the patent laws were abolished for quite a while uh, because people recognized that they were contrary to the free market and contrary to private property rights and, and private justice and private law. Um, and so they said, well, these are not monopoly privilege grants. These are like th this accusation is in inaccurate. This is not a monopoly pri privilege grant. It's a property right. Now, you can call anything that you're used to getting a property right, like someone who has a social security payment can say they have a property right in that stream of income, but really it's just the receipt of stolen money from the taxpayers. Uh, you know, Raytheon gets billions of dollars from taxpayers to, to build bombs that, that kill brown people overseas, and they think that's a property right too, but it's not a property right. No one has a property right in other people's property. Um, and so – the defenders of patent and copyright said, no, it's not a monopoly privilege grant by the state. It's a property right. And, of course, the critics said, what do you mean it's a property right? It expires in 17 years. How can that be a property right? And it's, it has to do with an intangible idea. It's not a material thing in the world that property rights apply to. And so the defenders said, well, it's a special type of property right. It's an intellectual property right because it's a creation of the mind. And so basically the, the concept and the term intellectual property is a propaganda term used to defend these monopoly privilege grants. So that's where the term came from. And under that rubric, they've grouped together a host of laws that, that all have to do with being able to make a profit in the economy based upon legal protection of something to do with intellectual creativity. So that would include patent and copyright, which have to do with inventions and artistic creations. And trademark, which has to do with um, you know the source, the names and marks that have to do with the source of goods, um, and trade secrets and some related rights. So that's the origin of intellectual property. And the thing is, it grew up part of the fabric of American law and Western law at the same time that the West became prosperous. And so your average, fairly unthinking person who is generally in favor of property rights and freedom and the Constitution and the West – and capitalism, they associate that with all kinds of property rights, which includes not just normal natural property rights, but intellectual property rights, because it's called property rights now because of this successful propaganda campaign. Um, so you have people that are in favor of the free market who are deluded into believing that intellectual property rights uh, are part and parcel of the system that they generally favor. You know, just like lots of people think that you have to have government control of, of um, uh, of imports and exports. You have to have tariffs. You have to have uh, a central bank system. You have to have public schools. You have to have government control of the roads and communication because we're used to these things being part and parcel of the American Western system of capitalism, even though they're really exceptions to it and contrary to it. 
um, you know, probably just like in Europe, if you told someone we're going to get rid of socialized medicine, they would they would freak out because they're used to it. They think it's part of their system. They're part of the Western liberal civilized humane order, but it's really not compatible with capitalism or libertarianism. So that's kind of a short precis of the history of how we got to this concept of intellectual property. And one other thing I can mention is that um, the reason that this mistake has been made, the mistake of believing that intellectual property is a legitimate type of property right, is because of what I call uh, libertarian or Lockean creationism. And that is a mistaken idea that creation is a source of rights. Now, this is actually closely related to to Marxism and, and to, the, to the Marxian um, labor theory of, of value, right? which is the idea that um, the true owner of the surplus value or the value of a created good is the worker who labors to put it. So like there's this idea that if, you, if you're a laborer, a worker, you own your body, therefore you own your labor, therefore you own the value that a good has. That is attributable to the labor that you put into it. So it's sort of a mystical idea that labor is like a type of substance that oozes from your body that you mix with things and that you have an ownership in. And this is actually the basis of communism, right? Um, But it's also the basis of Locke's argument for homesteading and natural property rights, which was that you own your body because God gave it to you. Therefore, you own your actions and you own your labor. And if you own your labor… And there's an unowned resource in the world, and you mix your labor with it. You must own that resource because otherwise you would lose your title to your labor like it's this thing. So that way of arguing, which is unnecessary in my view, like Locke's argument is correct, but not for his reasons. But he made an unnecessary step, but that unnecessary step led everyone into thinking that labor is a substance that people own. And it's led to this idea that uh, if you create a product… Um, you own the product because you created it, and so they have. So, this, go ahead. No, so so I'm, well, I'm I'm so glad I led with this question because I, the the history of all this is so fascinating to me, and I, I think it's really important for people to understand where these things come from. Um, you know, the idea that all of these laws around copyright and patent were never defended or instituted. Um, uh, on the basis of some sense of intellectual property, and that that rationale came about much later um, as a form of propaganda. I think that's something a lot of people don't realize, and I think it's important to know why and how these things start. Um, as you were saying about the idea of creationism, I think that really lends to sort of the, the space that we're in here with NFTs and artistic creation, Um and the idea that, you know, and, and what it seems like to me is, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, but it, it seems to me like, you know, you own, you might own your labor um, as long as you're the one who's in charge of your labor. Like if someone's paying you for your labor, then you're really no longer, um, you're sort of, you're sort of giving your labor over to that person. Is that, a, is that sort of a, a crude way kind of about right? Well, I think it's actually wrong, um, uh, and it's wrong because of a subtle misunderstanding, um, which is a blending of economic and legal concepts. Okay, so economics we describe descriptively what humans do. We try to we try to describe their actions. So, I would say if you understand the Rothbardian theory of contract and property rights, and you understand Austrian economics on the economic side. The right way to describe this is, is the following. Ownership is a term that means uh, the exclusive right to control a scarce resource that otherwise could be uh, fought over, like there could be conflict over, like a scarce resource. So ownership is really a control right that only has to do with scarce resources, including your body. So I would say we're owners or we have property rights in our bodies and in other scarce resources in the world. So when you own your body, what that means is uh, – no one else has the right to use it without your permission. That's, that's all that it means. Okay, But having that right gives you the ability to use it as you see fit, to act with it as you want or to labor with it as you want. So it doesn't make any sense to say you own your labor because labor is just an action, and action is just what you do with your body. So if you own a car, you can drive it, but you don't own the drivability of the car. You just own the car. You follow me? If you own your body, you can… 
you can have, take a shower with it or you can sing with it or you can take a nap with it. You can do whatever you want with your body because you own it, but you don't have a separate right to all these different activities that you do with your body. So you shouldn't say you own your labor. Now, people want to say that you own your labor because they, they want to say that you can sell your labor like in a labor market. But what that simply means is that economically um, you're performing an action in order to induce someone to give you money, right? Um, legally, there's legally a sale of property or sailors. Legally, you can have an exchange of goods. Like if I own an apple and you own an orange, we can exchange those goods. And in that kind of exchange, that's an economic exchange. And legally, there's two title properties that titles that exchange. The title to the orange goes from A to B, and the title to the apple goes from B to A. Okay, but some types of exchanges are economic exchanges that are the sale of labor, like you said. Uh, like an employee. Um, but in that case, legally, there's only one transfer of title. That's the money that's paid. Um, the, the action that's performed is just a condition or a trigger for the, say, for, for the transfer of the property. So basically, the contract ought to be viewed like this. I will give you $100 if you paint my fence. Okay. Now, economically, you can say that the labor was exchanged for the, the title to the money, which is just a way of explaining the motivations of the actors in, in Austrian terms, like in praxeological terms. But legally, there's only one transfer. That's the money because I didn't own my labor. It's not like a substance that I give up to you. Like after I painted the fence, it's not like the guy that owns the fence has a bucket with my labor in it that he owns. Right. Well, he right. Just has, so, so isn't yeah, it? So ahead. it's sort of like what you're what you're really you're not selling your labor. Right. So what you're saying is, is, is what you're selling is the finished painted fence. Right. So if you if you labor all day and you don't paint the fence, then you, you didn't you didn't really so, perform. Well, the... So 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 it's a complicated thing. Actually, this is going to be the topic of my talk in Turkey at Han Tamar Hoppus this year. Uh, this, this actual topic, because it's a confusion, uh, it takes about an hour to unpack it. But um, economically, you're selling your labor because the word sale in economics is just an explanation of the motivations of the actors. Right. It, it explains why did I paint the fence? I painted the fence in order to get title to the money. And why did the guy give me money? In order to get his fence painted. Okay, So he wanted an outcome. He already owned the fence. He, it's not like he owns anything different afterwards except maybe the paint on it. But that's an economic description. But legally, I don't think you're actually selling your labor or you're not selling the fence. Legally, all you're doing is you're – you're, you're using your control over your body and your right to withhold services, right? You don't have to paint the fence for the guy, and the guy knows that because you own your body. So the only way he can induce you to paint his fence, to, to, to engage in actions that he wants you to engage in, is for him to offer you a conditional transfer of title to his money. And the condition is, I hereby give you my money if the following event happens, which is my fence gets painted. So when that event happens, it triggers the condition that the money title gets transferred and the guy gets paid. Okay. Right, and it has it has really nothing to do with the labor because for all we know, um, the the person who's being employed here could turn around and you know give a portion of that money to someone else to pay. Correct. Them. He could subcontract it out, or if he, if he was a magic genie, he could snap his fingers and have it done. Or if there's space aliens that visit, the point is the guy wants to pay money to induce someone to have an event to have a future state of affairs happen. That wouldn't otherwise happen if he didn't intervene, which is to have his fence uh, cleaned up and painted. And by the way, this is the general way to view all human action. All human action is the attempt to employ efficacious, causally efficacious, scarce means, right, tools, things in the world to change the course of events to result in a future state of affairs that's different that would happen if you don't intervene. This is why Mises says that all human action is stimulated by the idea that we're um, we're uh, what's the word he uses we're dis we're un we're uncomfortable or we're discomforted by the idea uh, we're uneasy that's what he called, he, uneasiness we have felt uneasiness because we sense that some future state of affairs is coming that we don't like and that we have some glimmering idea that we could we could change it if we just intervene but you have to intervene with causally efficacious means. That means you have to use tools to get things done. You have to change the course of affairs. So, and that can that can involve hiring another person, or it can involve just doing it yourself. But the point is, every human action is ultimately aimed at changing the future. So it's not 
it's not usually aimed at acquiring ownership of a resource. Sometimes it is, but not always, right? If if I uh, if I've never seen if I've never flown in a hot air balloon, let's say, I might take the steps necessary to achieve that future state of affairs, which, which is that I have experience flying in a hot air balloon. So I would fly somewhere or drive somewhere where there's a hot air balloon field. I would use my money to pay someone. I would get in the balloon, take the time to do it, and I would experience that. After it's over with, I've achieved a successful outcome. I've achieved a profit in Mises' psychological terms because I, I, I was successful in my action. But I didn't acquire ownership of anything. I simply have an experience now that I didn't otherwise have. Um, so the general thing is every human action is aimed at changing the universe to, to achieve a different universe. Sometimes that's the acquisition of ownership of a, a property to some – a title to some property. Sometimes it's not. So you've, you've talked a lot about um, scarce resources when talking about ownership, and it seems, it seems to me like what you're saying is, is that um, ownership doesn't really exist unless the resources we're talking about are scarce. Is that – do I have your – am I understanding that right? Yes, and scarce in the sense of the economic concept of what we call rivalrousness or rivalry, and which I've, I've coined the term conflictability. So basically it's anything that's a tool or means of action that, could, that there could be conflict over, like two different human beings, two different actors could, could want to use that thing at the same time, and they would be unable to because of its nature. There okay. would be a conflict so, between them if they tried to use it. Okay, so if, if you could please um, explain to us – why an idea can't be owned and i'm i'm a, and i i'm assuming it has something to do with the fact that ideas aren't scarce resources correct yeah um yeah and i want to be clear here it's not that i'm saying as a libertarian i object to ownership of ideas what i'm saying is as a social scientist it is impossible to own ideas like it's literally impossible um it, 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 no law can create the ownership of information or ideas any more than a law could change the definition of pie, okay? Although some states have tried to do that with legislation, but you just can't change it because it's not possible. Um, and the reason is what I mentioned earlier. Um, if you understand just basic human action or praxeology or Mises, Austrian economics, and this is not too complicated, but the idea is that every human action is the use or the employment of scarce resources… Guided by knowledge. So th those are the two separate ingredients of successful human action. One is knowledge. One is the availability of scarce resources. The scarce resources are the physical things in the world that we use to manipulate reality to change things. They causally interfere. Those are the things that people can have conflict over, and that's why property rights emerge to help uh, determine who owns it. So we can use these things peacefully and in, in trade instead of having conflict and war with each other all the time. Um, knowledge accumulates over time. This is why we're a richer species now. It's because the sum total of knowledge at our disposal, mostly technical and scientific knowledge, is far greater and richer than was available to our ancestors from a thousand years ago. If they had known then what we know now, they would have a, a modern society as well because they could just simply use those techniques. This is why the third world countries can rise in prosperity so quickly as soon as they liberalize their property rights a little bit, like China. Because they can simply adopt the techniques that the West has been using and the West has developed, and they can get richer far quickly. Like, so that shows that knowledge is a key ingredient of successful human action. But all property rights, all ownership rights are necessarily um, the legal enforcement of your right to control a scarce resource, which means that – I mean the word enforcement is built into it. Like how do you enforce a law? Every law is basically enforcing or protecting a given property right, um, and force is a physical concept. Force can only be applied to a physical thing. It can't be applied to an idea. So when you have a law that says um, – let's say you have a law that says uh, an inventor of a new idea for a machine has ownership of that idea. That's not actually what the law is. That's just the way it's worded, but the way it, it has an effect is the patent owner goes to court. A physical court with a physical judge with physical enforcers, right? The government enforcers, and he he says words to say, "Hey, the government has given me this monopoly privilege grant over this patent, and someone else is using their own property in a way I don't like. 
that violates my property. In other words, they're configuring their own resources uh, in a way like they're making a similar machine to mine. So I want you to stop them from doing it. And how do you stop them? You threaten them with physical force. You say, if you don't stop doing it, we're going to send you to jail. We're going to take your we're going to take your resources from you in terms of a fine or a penalty. Right. So basically, copyright and patent are always enforced by going to a court and getting physical force directed at the physical property of people, their bodies or their factories or their printing presses or whatever. So ultimately, and this is what libertarians always point out, that ultimately every law is always enforced at the point of a gun. Right? It always comes down where the rubber hits the road is always physical force, and libertarians are opposed to aggression, which is the initiation of physical force. So we think you can use physical force, but only symmetrically, like only in response to the initiation of physical force. It always comes down to physical force, but physical force only has to do with scarce resources, physical things in the world that force can be applied to. It can't be applied to ideas. So what I'm saying is that the, the, the ostensible assignment of property rights in ideas by copyright and patent law is just a disguised way of transferring property rights in physical things. So it's what I call a negative servitude or a negative easement. So let, let me give an example. Um, everyone is usually familiar with the concept of homeowners associations where you have a group of houses in a, in a, in a neighborhood, and they've all agreed by contract uh, to certain limitations on how they can use their property. Like the houses have to be used for residential purposes. Um, they can't be too big. They can't uh, be too tall. They can't be the wrong color, You know things like that. These are limitations on the owner's control of their own resource that they agreed to by contract. Now, that's called a negative easement or a negative servitude in the law. It's a way of dividing up your property rights. You can view your property as a bundle of rights, and you know, if you were the 100% allodial owner of your house, you can transfer some control to your neighbors. You can give them a veto right or a negative right. You can give them the right to stop you from using your property in a certain way. Okay, this is all perfectly legitimate because it's consensual, because it's contractual. Just like sex between a man and a woman is perfectly fine if they both consent, but if the woman doesn't consent, it's called rape. So consent is the key to everything, right? Contract and consent are the key to everything, uh, because when you respect property rights, you respect the owner's right to grant permission or to deny permission. That's what consent means. That's what ownership means. Okay, now. A patent or a copyright is simply a negative servitude grant by the government, a negative easement grant, but the owner didn't consent to it. So the government simply says, hey, the patent owner now has a negative easement over everyone else's factory. He can stop everyone else from using their factory in a certain way to make this kind of product. Okay. And the thing is they didn't agree to it. The government just gave it to them. So it's, it's what Rothbard calls a triangular in intervention into the economy where the, the government gives a right from A to B, and the government takes its, its handling fee in the, in, the, in the form of patent office fees and things like that and court fees for enforcement. Okay, So this is the point that you can't own ideas. Any attempt to establish a property right in an idea is just a disguised um, transfer of property rights. In already existing physical things from one owner to another guy that the government favors, and that's ultimately the, the injustice of patent and copyright is that it's a negative easement which infringes on the property rights of existing owners because they did not consent to those easements. So just to kind of bring this into a more of an artistic point of view, because I think, you know, I, I mean, I'm I. I'm totally against the idea of intellectual property. I've, like I said, I've been listening to you for a long time, and I've I've come to believe and and it and it's not even believe. I think, like you say, it's not really a matter of opinion. I do I do agree that I feel like you just it's a sort of a factual thing that you just can't own an idea. But I think what a lot of artists would say, especially in the Web three space and in NFTs, um, is I think they have a hard time understanding how someone should be able to, you know take a screenshot um, mm -hmm. of one of their digital artworks mm -hmm. and then be able to sell that screenshot of mm -hmm. something that they created and, mm -hmm. and how that's um, why that should be allowed. Because obviously mm -hmm. there's a difference mm -hmm. between 
um, what's ethical or unethical and what mm-hmm. would be criminal or illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of this also comes into the difference between um, an issue of copyright and plagiarism. And I think Correct. a lot of times people confuse the two. They do. Um, is, is plagiarism um, a type of fraud? And is, is fraud something that is, is, should be punishable by law? Right. So and you see, you brought up all these things. And this is what happens. First of all, these laws are very arcane and specialized. Uh, only specialists like me really understand them. Um, most people that are in favor of them don't really understand the details and they have a general sense of it. And so they don't even know what they're supporting. And if you point out all these obvious injustices, I can give you a thousand different, obviously outrages from these laws. The supporters of these laws will say, well, I'm not in favor of that. <laughs> they will always back off, but they'll say, well, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm like, well, what is the bathwater? You know, I mean, what is the baby? What's, what's the good part? And they'll say, well, I'm not an expert. I don't know. I mean, so, so they have this just general sense. And part of the reason is um, the defenders throw up all this chaff. Like they, they want to conflate plagiarism, fraud, ethical issues. Uh, attribution, which is accreditation, you know, giving someone attribution rights, uh, attribution for their for their creativity, and you have to understand all these things to really untangle them. So, fraud properly viewed. So most people actually misuse the concept of fraud. They, they basically say, well, if you lie, you're defrauding someone, so that can be punished. Well, that's not true. Lying per se is not a crime, right? Fraud is a specific type. It's like a type of contract breach. Um, or it's a type of theft by trick, we call it, or tra- theft by deceit. Fraud simply means um, misrepresenting the nature of a good or the nature of the transaction in order to obtain possession of someone else's property without their informed consent. So it's a way of tricking someone to give you something. Like if I, you know, if I want your money and I sell you rotten apples and I know they're rotten, you know, I'm defrauding you of your money because I know that I'm giving you bad apples, but you expect good apples. So it's a, it's simply it's simply a species of theft, um, and fraud is certainly something that should be actionable under the law because it's a type of it's a type of trespass or a type of theft or a type of conversion of someone's property without their consent. Um, and ultimately, the touchstone of all libertarian law is identify someone's property rights, which means they're the owner, which means they have to give consent for you to use it. If you're using someone's property without their consent. That's the ultimate libertarian offense. You can call it murder, theft, rape, trespass, fraud, whatever. But those are just species of the way – even threats. You know, That's ways of, of basically using someone's property without their consent. Um, but when you copy information people make public, you're not committing fraud. You're not necessarily committing plagiarism, which is a separate thing. Plagiarism simply means a, a social a – social offense or a contract breach like with a university or something where you're where you're lying you're misrepresenting the fact that you came up with an idea and you're saying that you did it but you just copied it from someone else without giving them attribution that's not usually fraudulent it's just usually a breach of contract or unethical like it's dishonest like i would say dishonesty in general is unethical or it's immoral but it shouldn't be illegal per se so plagiarism has literally nothing to do with copyright because copyright if you copy the latest uh, uh, Harry Potter novel and you put J.K. Rowling's name on it, you're not plagiarizing because you're not even pretending to be the author. <laughs> you're just copying it. But that would be prohibited by copyright. It's, it's not plagiarism at all. It's just copying. Um, and by contrast, if I take the Bible and I put my name on it and I sell it, that doesn't violate any copyright because there's no copyright on the Bible anymore, at least you know the ancient versions. Um, not the new translations. Um, or if I take Shakespeare's, you know, Romeo and Juliet, and I put my, or I take Moby Dick by Herman Melville, and I put, I, I say uh, Moby Dick by Stephen Kinsella, I'm going to look like an idiot, and it is plagiarism, but it's not against copyright. So copyright doesn't stop plagiarism, and plagiarism, you know, uh, and not plagiarizing doesn't prevent you from copyright liability. So they really have nothing to do with each other. But if you say you're against copyright, people will say, oh, you're in favor of plagiarism. They don't – they really don't know what they're talking about. They're either lying or they're dishonest or they're uneducated. Uh, and the same thing with fraud. Um, people will say, well, um, if I sell Harry Potter's book with my name on it, I'm misrepresenting. I'm defrauding customers. Well, first of all, if, if I'm selling a, a, new, thick, a new novel 
and I put my name on it, and I'm not the author, and I sell a bunch of copies to people under the mis, you know, and I, I deceive them into the true nature of who I am, or who who wrote the book. They might have a fraud claim against me because I deceive them into giving me their money, but the victim is the customers. It's not the copyright owner. It's not the other author. It's the it's the people whose money I took. Right. So I, there is nothing in copyright in fraud law, in plagiarism, in ethical standards that supports copyright or patent law at all. Yeah, see, I think I think this is really important because, like I said, I think a lot of people conflate the two, especially in the space. And, I, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the issues people have is with with people taking their artwork and pretending to be them um, selling the artwork. Right. So obviously, like so you have a book coming out very soon called Copy This Book um, right. about intellectual property. And so it's sort of like. If I were to copy all the pages in that book, including the title page with your name on it, and you know, go try to have it, let's say, published somewhere, or mm-hmm. if I even were just trying to sell it, um, there would be no issue with that. However, if I were to put my name on it and then try to go convince a publisher that I wrote it and then sign a contract with them, and then later they find out I didn't really write it, um, that's a different story. Well, you'd be a breach of contract with your publisher. Right. But 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 this just is not a problem that really happens. I mean, like I said, there are there are millions of books that are out of copyright right now and that are they still sell like on Amazon. And and yet you don't see a widespread problem of plagiarism right now. You don't have ancient books that are still somewhat popular being sold under under the fake name because because people knowledge is public and people generally know who wrote a book. And if they see, uh, you know, if they see, they see, uh, they they see uh, Moby Dick by John Smith, they're not going to buy it because they're not going to trust the veracity of even the information on the inside. I mean, you're free to try that, and I'd say there's actually almost nothing wrong with doing it as an experiment. But I mean, it's not going to work. It doesn't work right now. No one does this, so it's it's a it's a non-problem. Is my point. But to the extent it was a problem, it's not a problem that copyright has anything to do with. Yeah, and you know my my perspective on this too. So you know, as an artist and as someone who, you know, I'm not I'm not like a Herman Melville of art. You know, I, I'm some people know who I am, but not a ton. But like my perspective has always been like, if someone wanted to take my artwork and slap it on a sweatshirt and sell it. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that's free advertising. I don't, you know, it's like it's it's only going to benefit me. I don't care. Um, and if there, someone there, were there, to look, there there yeah. are some people at the top who, uh, under today's copyright system, do make uh, uh, more money than they could in a free market. Um, I'm not going to pretend that everyone is going to be better off if we get rid of copyright. There are some people that are welfare grifters on copyright right now that make too much money. Uh, because they're basically soaking consumers or they're they're distorting culture as the price we have to pay for them to become hyper rich. I mean, there's always beneficiaries of these systems. And if you get rid of the system, some people will be worse off, some will be better. But the ultimate question is, is it just? But you asked earlier, like about um people want to know why should you be allowed to do a screenshot of a picture and I don't know, use it on a coffee mug or whatever you want to do with it. Well, the ultimate reason is because the person that that uh designed the um or came up with the with the picture or the or the or the, or the graphic or whatever it is, they chose to make it public. And the nature of information is something that once you inform people, you make it public. That's what public public publish means to make it public to tell other people to to release it from your own brain or your own private uh, system and to release it into the world. And the nature of information is that it can spread, it can be copied, it can be learned from, it can be emulated. Uh, people can compete with you. So if you sell a product uh, which has an innovative feature, you have chosen to tell the world, hey, here's a way to do this new thing. Now you're telling them as part of your advertising. You're saying, hey, my new mousetrap has a better feature, so please buy me. And so you make a lot of money, but you're telling the world, oh, hey, you can improve your mousetraps if you do this with it. And so, of course, the information, if it's really useful, people will emulate that. This is why this is why people tend to emulate successful uh, um, innovators in, in the world. Um, and the same thing with, 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 with music or songs or artwork. 
if you if you you know paint a painting in your garage, you can keep it private if you want. But if you want the acclaim or you want to sell prints, you have to release it to the world. And once you release it to the world, you're telling the world, hey, here's a new useful pattern of information. And once you tell people how to do it, they're able to copy it with their own resources. That's just the way it is. You have a choice to make. So you really can't complain if people copy works that you make public. Now, the response to this usually is, well, they're violating a contract because I'm only releasing it on certain conditions. It's like, well, but you don't have a contract with the world. That's the thing. Right. You don't have yeah. a contract with people's brains who happen to see your work. Like now that, that picture is in their head. Yeah. I, I mean, mean ultimately, can't... there's no distinction. There's no objective distinction between general facts and knowledge and information and so-called artistic works or innovative inventions. It's all just knowledge. And if you reduce it to a simple example, like let's suppose um, uh, you know, let's suppose uh, I found I don't know the 15 billionth decimal of pi. No one knew that before because they only went up to the 14th billionth decimal. I don't know. Like I know that it's five. I know the 15th billionth decimal of pi is five, and no one else knows that because I only I have a special technique that allowed me to figure that number out. I can go to my grave with that information. But if, if I tell my friend, hey, guess what? I figured out the 15, 15 billionth decimal of pi is five, and he tells a friend, eventually the fact will be out there that, that that's what that decimal is. It's five. And so you, you can't say, well, there's a guy in China who is using the fact that that decimal is five, and I didn't give him permission to. Well, then you shouldn't have told someone, you know, you shouldn't have released that information into the world. Right. It's sort of like, no, it's just, I always try to like, I just, for me anyway, I I always try to come up with scenarios to help things make sense to me. And, And to me, I sort of imagine it's like someone having a hammer and having a duplicator that duplicates that hammer. And then they hand the duplicate to someone else and then try to tell that person they can't use the hammer that you just gave to them. Well, or, 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 or you could imagine you know, someone comes up with the idea of using fire to cook food, or they, they say, hey, we don't have to live in caves anymore. You can chop down trees and make a log cabin. Some, some other guy sees you making a log cabin. He goes, oh, that's a good idea. So he starts making a log cabin. I mean by this strict idea of intellectual property, you, you have the right to tell everyone, no, you can't, you can't make a house with logs. You have to get my permission and pay me a royalty because you got the idea from me. It's, a, it's absurd. Now, if you point to these absurd examples, defenders of IP will always – I'm from Louisiana, so I'll say they crawfish. They, you know, they, they, they tuck their tails in and they back up. They'll always retreat from an obvious case of, of outrage or injustice. They'll say, well, I'm not in favor of that. Or, or I, oh, you, you know, it's, just, it's just like liberals when you say, well, you're in favor of $15 minimum wage. Why not $1,000? And they'll say, well, that's ridiculous. Like, right. Yeah, it's a pr- matter of, it's a matter of principles, same. right? It's a matter and of I, degree. And, Right. It's right, a matter of degree. And I think with ideas, too, it's like everyone's always thinking about what the newest idea is, but they never backtrack it. And I've, I've used the example because I'm in the pizza business. It's like it, it's, it's like the first person who came up with the idea of making a pepperoni pizza, you know, claiming that nobody else should be able to make a pepperoni pizza. And I think people today would be like, well, that's absurd. I, I can't imagine like people not being able to make and sell a pepperoni pizza. But that's basically what you're saying. And well, you hold, take hold it back even Let's- further. Let, yep. Let's go back in history for a second. One of the – back in uh, – I think it's called uh, – I forgot the name of the city. It's, it's a, it was a city-state in, in Babylonia or Greece or somewhere. Sybaris, the city-state of Sybaris back in 500 BC, there was a culinary competition every year, and the, the local king would have this comp- – like who had the best new food dish this year? And whoever won would have a monopoly right to be the only one who could make that dish for the next year. <laughs> so you actually literally have food patents as far back as 2,500 years ago. That's amazing. But then again, even there, you're saying it's it's not, you know, this isn't a matter of some concept or, or defense of some intellectual property. It's it's just a tool that this, you know, this king is using to, you know, whatever, for, for whatever his purposes might well, be. Well, of course, it, it, he was violating the property rights of the other people who were not allowed to make whatever the equivalent of pepperoni pizza was at the time. Um, and of course you do have, I mean, 
generally food is not easy to patent, but you do have on occasion some pizza people they'll 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 patent like I don't know um, stuffing the stuffing the the corners with cheese in a certain cylindrical fashion in a, in a unique technique. I mean, they try to use patent law to leverage their ability to protect themselves. And by the way, what you could point to was what was innovative was like when McDonald's started having drive throughs And when, when I don't remember who the first pizza company was, that started having home delivery. Remember like in the seventies or whenever that was, might've been pizza hut, might've been Domino's, whoever. But of course now you have tons of companies delivering pizza to people's homes. But you could say that, well, I came up with the idea of, of delivering pizza to your home. Why, why don't I have a monopoly over that for 17 years? Well, then you could also say that somebody before that person came up with the concept of delivery in general. Maybe not with pizza, well, and, but with something else. And that gets to the point of one problem with patents is that everyone assumes that, again, it's this creationist mistake that creation is a source of, of, of property. And creation, creation is not a source of property. It's a source of wealth. And what I say, what I mean is creation is what we call in economics production. Production does not mean making matter out of nothing because you can't do that. What we do is we see available resources on the earth, and we gather them, and we transform them, or we rearrange them using our labor and our intellect. So you take an input factor that you own. So you already own the input factors like steel, and you shape it into a sword or a plow. Right, So now you have iron transformed into a plow. So you have transformed a resource that you already owned, and you made it more valuable to you, which means you've increased your wealth. So creation is a source of wealth, but it's not a source of property rights because you already owned the input factors that went into the, into the plow. So you own the plow because you own the stuff that went into it. Just like the worker on Henry Ford's assembly line doesn't own the car he makes with his labor because he doesn't own the input factors. The, Henry Ford and his company owns the input factors, right? So creation is only – and, and, and the, other, the other point to make is innovation is never uh, uh, in, in a void. It's always part of a cumulative process of the incremental progress of human knowledge. So when the technology gets to the point where – it's possible to build an airplane, or it's possible to make a transistor, or it's possible to make a light bulb. It will happen because you will have multiple inventors using the base technology to come up with the next incremental innovation. The point is every innovation is always an improvement building upon previous innovations. So if you claim a monopoly over this slight incremental innovation over what's gone before, it doesn't make any sense because… If you have a monopoly over your improvement, then the improvements you're building upon should block you from using it, right? So, like, the whole thing makes no sense. That's such a good way to, of putting it. It's like, it's yeah, it's like this, it's like this, um, it's sort of like a snake eating its tail, right? It's, it's just it's a never-ending cycle that'll go back until the beginning of time. Um, we have about just under 10 minutes left in our, in our discussion, and this has been fantastic. This has been amazing. Um, I do, I, I want to touch a little bit just at the end here about, um, I want to touch on your your thoughts on crypto and, and on mm -hmm. Bitcoin and ownership just briefly. Um, I know it's not a brief subject. I'm sure you could talk for hours about it. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I do find it fascinating and also just in connection with the idea that that ideas are are not scarce and, and ideas exist in multiple people's brains um, mm -hmm. simultaneously and that the same sort of principle can be applied to something like Bitcoin in the sense that in a sense you don't really own it uh, mm -hmm. even though you might um, you know your your wallet might be attached to it mm -hmm. can, you, can you kind of explain that just a little bit yeah I, I let me briefly go into that I've talked about this in several podcast interviews before which are all on my website uh, on my podcast feed if people want to go into more detail here's the way I look at it people laymen tend to mis misuse or they use the word ownership um, in a practical sense rather than the legal sense, or they conflate them, okay? If you have to remember that, look, if you imagine a, a Robinson Crusoe alone on his island, he's an actor in the world, and he has to use his knowledge and his ideas to know what to do, but he has to employ scarce resources on the island to act. So he uses things. He possesses things. He controls things. You know, He might take a bamboo pole to make a, to make a spear. He might make a fishing net to catch fish. The point is he has ownership of – he doesn't have ownership of these things. He has possession, 
but he has the full ability to do it because there's no one threatening his use of it. When other people enter the picture in society, you have now you have a benefit, which is the ability to live among people, to have intercourse with people, to have trade, to have division of labor. But you also now have a threat to your resources because there's a possibility of conflict now. So property rights – the purpose of property rights is to solve this possibility of conflict by allocating ownership. So the very purpose of property rights is to try to make you more like Robinson Crusoe, like to make you have the ability to use a resource without a threat from another person. Property rights enforcement is never perfect because you can always have a criminal who can, who can violate your rights and violate property rights, but that's the purpose of it. Now a system like Bitcoin gives you the ability to control this scarce – I won't call it a scarce resource, but to control your Bitcoin okay? Um, because of the encryption and the way the system works. So it's almost better than ownership because no one is able to take it from you. So you're sort of in between Crusoe and the guy in society with really good property rights enforcement, but it's just natural because of the technology. It's like if you keep an idea in your head, no one can copy it. Um, so it's, that's not – you have a property right to it. It's just that that's a way you found to keep people from using this thing that you find valuable. So people call that ownership because they're used to thinking of ownership and property rights as the way to give you the ability to use something you want to use without interference from other people, and the Bitcoin system does that in a technological sense. So I would say the best way to look at it is it's analogous to property rights, and it's even better than property rights. But technically speaking, it's not a property right because bitcoins don't exist as independent physical things in the world. They are just information on a, on a big ledger, and the ledger is distributed and stored on many people's computers. Okay, So when you say you have a bitcoin, what that means is you have the practical ability to use your private key… … to enter this network and to use its rules to transfer it to someone else or to do something like that. That's what that means. Um, but the Bitcoin itself is not like an independently existing thing. So just like a, a, a novel or a song doesn't exist up in the air and it can be owned, it's always the arrangement or the impatterning of an underlying carrier or substrate. So a book, for example, is the way ink is arranged on the pages of of uh, 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 a stack of, of paper, right? And uh, a song is the way that bits are arranged on the memory of of, a, of an iPhone or, or or the grooves of a record or something like that. But those underlying substrates are always scarce things that someone owns. So if I own a record, I own that physical record, uh, but I don't own the way it's arranged, so I can't stop anyone else from doing it. That's that's the uh, the essence of the case against intellectual property. But the point is information itself can't be owned, as I mentioned earlier, because it would always result in the transfer of ownership of other people's rights. So Bitcoin has to be viewed as the way we conceive of the entries on this, on this database, this ledger, which, are, which is stored on many people's hard drives around the world. Like it's distributed, so there's 10,000 or 100,000 copies in different nodes and different miners' computers around the world, and every one of those people owns their own computer. So… If you were to own Bitcoin, that would mean that you have a property right in how everyone else's computer is arranged. So for example, if, if you own a Bitcoin, it means it could be stolen. If someone steals your Bitcoin, that means theoretically you could use government force to give an order to everyone in the world to change the way their memory is arranged to roll back the blockchain you know, to give you your Bitcoin back or something like that. But that would violate their property rights in their own property. This is ultimately why you can't legally own Bitcoin, but it, it doesn't matter because the technical, practical ability to so-called possess or own it is better than legal ownership. Um, th so the thing you have to keep in mind is when, when I say that you can't own Bitcoin, most Bitcoiners bristle, and they think I'm criticizing Bitcoin because you know, they think that's a feature of the, of the system. But that's because they're using ownership in a, in a in sort of uh, imprecise, uh, colloquial, colloquial way. So that's how I would look at Bitcoin. So, um, and NFTs, by the way, are similar. Sometimes people say that NFTs are one way that you could uh, have a private version of copyright or something like that. That's just not true. They don't understand copyright. And personally, I'm skeptical of I'm skeptical of, of NFTs utility and of smart contracts uh, viability. But that's a different issue. <laughs> Well, I you know I've I have heard some of and, and read some of your thoughts on that, and I would um, very much love to talk to you about that subject as well because as you know, even as someone who's um, 
you know, very, it's extremely involved in NFTs. And I, I, I personally believe it and, and I love it. Um, I, I, it doesn't preclude me from wanting to hear other perspectives, um, especially from someone uh, who's as thoughtful as you are. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with me about these issues. And I think that, you know, one thing I think I've realized during this conversation um, is how important uh, definitions are and how important it is to know what it is we're talking about when we're using certain words. I, I think especially in an era where everyone feels like they can have their own definition of things, it, it's it's really crucial, I think, to have a firm sort of understanding of uh, what it means when we talk about things like ownership, what it means when we talk about things like property. And so um, I think you explaining a lot of these terms and especially in a legal sense where, you know, you, you, everyone has to be working off the same definition. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time out, Stefan, and, and I, I hope to talk to you soon. Where can people find out more about you, your work and what you have coming up? Uh, go to stephankinsella.com and uh, c4sif.org. All right. Thanks again, Stefan. Thanks so much.